One of the books that I tend to recommend most often um, is the classic work by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. Knowing God. In fact, outside of the Bible, uh, few books have been as impactful in my life as this incredible work. And so I would just encourage you, if you don't have it, if you've never read it before, to maybe hit up the bookstall before you leave or open your Amazon app after service and uh, secure a copy for yourself. You will be glad that you did. I was reminded this week as I was uh, listening to another pastor preaching of one of the questions that Packer asks in the book. In chapter 19, Packer asks the question, what is a Christian? He responds, the question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. The Christian is one who has God as Father. Packer continues, but cannot this be said of every person, Christian or not? Emphatically, no. He writes, the idea that all are children of God is not found in the Bible anywhere. The Old Testament shows God as the father, not of all, but of his own people, the seed of Abraham. The New Testament has a world vision, but it too shows God as the father, not of all, but of those who, knowing themselves to be sinners, put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the divine sin bearer and master. And so become Abraham's spiritual seed. Friends, we are by nature born into this world, not as children of God, but as children of the enemy, the devil. We are by nature rightly and justly deserving of separation from God as the right and just punishment for our sin. And yet... And yet, or as Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, but God. And yet, for all who receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, for all who believe in Jesus Christ, God gives the right and the privilege to become his own children. I love the way John chapter one records this as John begins his gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ by writing that Jesus came to his own, to his own people, and yet his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to all who did believe in his name, he gave, just as he now gives, the right to become children of God. Children who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but are born of God. Friends, all who receive Jesus, all who believe in him are given the right to become children of God. We are made children of God. We have a new father. God is now our father, which is why Jesus teaches his followers to pray here in Luke chapter 11 by calling on God, not as supreme ruler 
or not as cosmic creator, or not as grand master, but in fact as father. In fact, the theme of fatherhood is found all throughout these verses, even the verses we're going to look at here this morning. God is our father, and we are his children. And friends, this is the most fundamental relationship we have, period. That God is our Father and we are his children. Where once we were enemies of God, we are now made his very own. And as children, we now have certain privileges. And one of them is that we can call God our Father. One of them is that we are adopted into his family, that our sins are forgiven, that we are reconciled back to God through the work of Jesus Christ. And so we have the privilege now to confidently come to our Father in prayer, asking him for what we need, which is the focus of this morning's text. And so if you've not yet heeded Bonnie's good instruction for you and open to Luke chapter 11, I would just encourage you to do that now. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 5 through 13. Now, anytime we, we think about God as Father, there's an automatic reaction, I think, to connect in our minds our earthly Father with God as our Father. And so if you, like me, have a, a wonderful earthly father, it makes it a little bit easier because you think about how wonderful your earthly father is and then you just kind of project that onto God and it makes it a little easier to understand how God can be a good heavenly father. And if you're, maybe perhaps this morning your, your earthly father isn't so good or wasn't so good, I think there's a temptation to draw parallels and to project negative things on God's fatherhood. And this is where it's important to remember that it is God who defines reality, and it's God who defines our terms. We don't define things and then project them onto God, but it's God who tells us the way something is, and we are to believe him. And so when God tells us that he is the father of all who believe, and then he goes on to describe what that fatherhood looks like, we need to let his description define the way we understand him. And here in our text this morning, God, through Jesus and Luke recording it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit does this very thing. He is communicating to us, giving us evidence for the kind of father that God is to his children. He is a good father. And as a good father, he invites his children to come to him asking for the good gifts that he gives. So, we pick up here in verse 5. Jesus He's in the middle of teaching his disciples how to pray. You'll remember back in verse 1, his disciples observe him praying, and so they come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And in response, Jesus begins by giving them what we sometimes call the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer, perhaps. And usually when people recite the Lord's Prayer, they end at verse 4. But Jesus is not done at the end of verse 4 teaching us how to pray. He continues by telling them 
and telling us a story. Look at verse 5. And Jesus said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Now let's just pause there for a minute. And Jesus has just given them a pattern for prayer in verses one through four and now Jesus gives them and as he gives us a parable for prayer. And the parable is pretty straightforward. A man is in bed at night as would be the custom in the day for the working class, the whole family is sleeping together, likely sleeping together in the same room when a knock comes at the door. Maybe the knock awakens him in the middle of the night, and if you're like me, you know that when the phone rings in the middle of the night, it's not usually something good. In fact, usually our natural response is not like, oh, I wonder who's calling to chat. Or I wonder who's texted me some funny meme, right? No, if the call comes or the text comes at 1 a.m. in the morning, the thought is, okay, what happened? Or who in the church is sick? Or who in the church has has been involved in an accident, right? This is probably likely the neighbor's response. So he calls out, who is it, right, we would imagine? Well, it's the neighbor next door. He's had some unexpected guests crash his house just now, and he desperately needs something to feed them. Now, we can acknowledge living in the 21st century how we live in a different day and time. We might not think this is such a big deal. I mean, most of us would not imagine going next door at, let's say, 1 a.m. and waking up our neighbors and saying, hey, like, you got any leftover pizza? Because uh, we just had some house guests show up or... You know, our child brought home some friends from college. They just arrived. Everybody's hungry. No, we, we wouldn't do that. But remember, this is the first century, not the 21st century. And having nothing to feed your guests was a serious breach of etiquette. Like, this is a big deal. To have nothing to feed your guest was, was wrong. And so the knocking neighbor wasn't just irresponsible. He wasn't just looking for some assistance. He needed a way to rightly honor these unexpected guests. So perhaps a better parallel might be if you were in your bed sleeping tonight and all of a sudden you get a phone call or you get a knock at your door and it's the next door neighbor who says, hey, my wife has just gone into labor and we're trying to rush to the hospital but my car won't start. Can I borrow your car? Now, unless your neighbor is really shady, in which case you may be tempted to say, all right, I'll drive you all to the hospital My guess is that if you know your neighbor and they're not so shady, most of us in this room would respond like, absolutely, here are my car keys. We'll work out the details later. Just take it and go. Why? Why would we not say, hey, go away. Like we just finally got the baby to sleep and, uh, and if I get up and try to get my car keys, the dog's going to wake up, the dog's going to start barking, the dog's going to wake up the baby, and then we're going to be up for like another hour trying to get her back to sleep. None of us would respond like that. Why? 
There's a few reasons why. Maybe, hopefully, because we are compassionate Christians and we recognize that everything we own, even our car, is, is a gift that we are called to steward by the Almighty God for his kingdom purposes. So this is not about us getting what we want, us being able to keep and protect what we want. It's about utilizing the resources we have for other people's benefit. Or, a second reason we may give our car keys to our neighbor or help is because we can sympathize, perhaps, with the person who is in need. We maybe remember in our minds, we go back to a time when we were in significant need and the Lord, or our neighbor or a friend or a stranger or someone helped us out and we remember what it felt like to be so helpless in those moments. Or yet a third reason why we may help out is because we know that we're going to have to see that neighbor again and again and again. And if we refuse to help, we know that our neighbor is going to go to some of the other neighbors. And in our close-knit neighborhood, word will travel fast that we refuse to help. And so, to keep our reputation intact, we will go ahead and help. And it's this third reason the reputation reason that ultimately prompts this sleeping neighbor to get up and to give his neighbor what he needs. Look at verse eight. And I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. That word Impudence is a unique word. In fact, the Greek word translated impudence is used only here in the Bible, nowhere else. And it means a lack of sensitivity to what is proper. A lack of sensitivity to what is proper. Now, there's some really healthy debate among biblical scholars about which of these two men is impudent. Is it the man who is inside the house asleep, is he the one who's showing impudence? Or is it the man who's knocking at the door? Is that the man showing impudence? I would encourage you to study it for yourself, do some research, spend some time here, wade into the discussion. It's a healthy discussion among very knowledgeable biblical scholars about which of these two men it is. I'm gonna give you what I think. And I think The impudent man is the one who is in the house in bed. I think that for a few reasons. First, it would not be improper in this culture to ask your neighbor for bread even at night. It would not be impudent to ask your neighbor for bread, to honor an unexpected guest. It would be what everyone would expect to do if they had an unexpected guest crash their house and they didn't have anything to feed them with. So he's not being improper by going next door, even though to us in the 21st century, this might seem really rude and kind of strange. Also, unlike the parable of the persistent widow, remember the widow that keeps coming back and again and again and again, give me justice, give me justice, and Jesus says, like this is the model in which you ought to pray, just continue to ask the Lord. We have zero indication that the neighbor keeps knocking, 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 knocking as though he's just gonna keep knocking and the neighbor, finally, the neighbor inside the house finally wears down, like, okay, fine, he will not shut up and go away. I'll give him bread to get him to go away. We don't have any indication that he continues to knock or continues to ask or continues to, 
seek bread. Third, there's the fact that the focus of this entire parable is not on the man at the door knocking, but the focus of the entire parable is on the man who is in the house. In fact, Jesus even begins that way. Which of you who has a friend will, um, who has a friend will, which of you, let me try that again, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him and he will answer him from within, do not bother me. So the whole perspective of this parable is set from the man inside the house. And then we also have the fact that the majority of the pronouns in this parable refer to the man who is in bed. And finally, and maybe most importantly, Understanding that the impudent man is the man in bed best fits with the theological theme of this parable. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you, just keep tracking because hopefully by the end of our time together this morning, it's going to make more sense. Or if you're like, you know what, it's not even noon on a Sunday morning and that's all way too deep and way too heady, way too scholarly, theological, I'm not really tracking, I've just encouraged you to revisit that later for yourself. This is why this is important. What Jesus is communicating in verse eight is this. Even though the man in bed will not help his neighbor, even though they're friends, in other words, their friendship was not enough to get him to act, he will help to avoid the shame that not helping will bring. In other words, he will help for the sake of his reputation. He will help for the sake of his name. This parable is meant to be absurd. Jesus begins with this rhetorical question, which of you? This is really a rhetorical parable. And the obvious answer to everyone who would have been listening is, all of us would do that. All of us would help our neighbor, if only to save face and keep our reputation intact. All of us would help. Like the whole focus of the parable is on the actions of the man inside the house. He's the one who has the blessing, the blessings that the man at the door desperately needs. And so a really good question to ask then of this text is, which man represents us and which man represents God or our Father in heaven? And if you need a clue, just look at the next verse, verse 9. Jesus says, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So the point in context is this. Pray and ask the Father, because everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. We are the one who is standing outside, knocking at the door. We are the one who is asking for what we need. Remember, This relates to the Lord's prayer. And so when we pray for God's name to be hallowed and when we pray for his kingdom to come and when we pray for our daily needs and for forgiveness when we sin and for protection to walk in holiness, God responds and he listens. But you might think, well, wait a minute. The impression that we get from the guy in bed is that he doesn't really want 
to help, right? I mean, he just helps only to protect his reputation. Like, is that the message we're to walk away from about our Father in heaven? Like, yeah, he'll answer our prayers, he'll give us gifts, but he doesn't really want to. He only helps to protect the fame of his name. That's an important question. And to see the answer of that question, we need to see how Jesus wraps up this teaching on prayer, how it fits all together. Look at verse 11. What father among you, if he has a son, or if his son asks for a fish, will, instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Like how horrible would we as fathers have to be if our son or daughter asks for some food and we give them a poisonous snake instead? Or we give them something harmful instead? Like that would be the opposite of what a good father would do. A father who acted like that would not, in fact, be good. And we all know that. We know that good fathers seek the very best for their kids. They want to give them good things. They want to bless. They want to help. They want to nourish. And Jesus then gives these three important words here in verse 13. Look at verse 13. How much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more? This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus is saying, if you as evil fathers, not meaning evil the way we think, like villain, right, black cape, right? we're thinking evil, like imperfect, faulty motivation sometimes, incapable of understanding what is absolutely best in every situation. But if you, fathers who are like that, still know how to give good gifts to your children, how much greater, right? How much more will the heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask? If a good father knows how to give good gifts to his children, how much more does our heavenly father give good gifts to those of us, his children? And to connect this back to the first parable, if even a grouchy neighbor, motivated only by protecting his reputation, will still give to his friend who asks, how much more Will the good father in heaven give it to his children and long to give to his children who ask and who seek and who knock? Both of these parables about the neighbor and the father are arguments from the lesser to the greater. Like even a bad neighbor will give bread and even an imperfect father will give good gifts. How much more will your heavenly father give good gifts and long to give good gifts to those who ask him. So these verses aren't just about our asking. 
They are about God, our Father, and his knowledge and his ability and even his longing to give good gifts to his children. Now, let's make this really practical. What about when you ask and you seek and you knock, but you do not receive? Maybe you long to have children. And you know, because the Bible is clear, that children are a blessing from the Lord. They are a gift. And you long for children. And you have asked and sought and knocked to have the gift of children. But as of yet, you have not. What then? Maybe you have prayed and prayed for the salvation of a loved one and you know what a blessing it is to be forgiven and adopted by our Heavenly Father and you so desperately want that for your loved one and yet to this point they have not turned and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ or maybe they passed into eternity never to your knowledge trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. What then? Maybe you have desperately wanted to find a spouse and get married. Or maybe you are married, but the marriage is crumbling or the marriage is completely gone, eroded from the inside out, and you are praying and crying out to God, asking and seeking and knocking that God would give you the good gift of a spouse or that he would restore your marriage. But as of yet, he hasn't. What then? Or maybe you are sick. Or maybe your child is sick. Or your grandchild is sick. Or a friend is sick. And you know that God is the God of healing and God is a God who restores and God is a God who in the blink of an eye could bring complete restoration and health to your body or to the body of a loved one and you are prayed and sought and asked and knocked over and over and over again and yet as of yet he has not or maybe your loved one has passed into eternity never having been healed physically in the way you had asked for them to be healed. What then? Well, these are hard questions, and they are hard not because the answer is complicated, but they are hard because the answer comes from the very, really the question comes from the very deepest part of our being. We don't just intellectually ask these kinds of questions. We, we ask these questions with our soul, with our gut, with our heart. And so when we look to the answers of these kinds of questions, we're not simply satisfied usually with just knowing the answer. We also want to feel the answer. We want to feel like that's true. We want to feel and embrace that which Scripture says and our minds are trying to comprehend. So, in the time remaining, what I want to do is I want to walk through 
the answer to these questions as carefully and as compassionately and as honestly as I can with the Bible as our guide. And I want to say that if you'll notice, the examples that I gave are all for things that the Bible says are good gifts, are good things. In other words, these are, it's, not, it's not that we're praying in these examples for things that could be good or could be bad, like a raise or that your team would win or for a bigger house. Right? Those things could be good gifts. Those things could be treacherous, dangerous gifts. What we're referring to now are things that the Bible itself describes as good. First thing we should know is that if you are asking and seeking and knocking for good things and the Father has not yet given them to you, we weep with you. And as a church family, our hearts hurt with you. If you identify with one of the examples I gave a few minutes ago or similar examples, know that you are in a room full of people and there are others in this room who have likely walked through some of those very same things you are feeling as well. And we exist not only to attend a church service regularly every week, every week, every week, but we exist to commit our lives to one another as a family for the express purpose of weeping with those who weep and mourning with those who mourn and coming alongside you in your hurt and in your suffering and in your pain that we might say, you are not alone. Even though I may not be able to fix it, I'm here to weep with you and lament with you and grieve with you and cry with you. So let me just encourage Sunday school teachers and small group leaders, even this week and in the following weeks, Create space, create room in your time together as a small group or discipleship leaders as you're discipling others. Create margin, create space for honest vulnerability, for for those in your group to weep, for them to mourn, for them to lament as is needed. To be comforted by brothers and sisters in the faith who don't pretend that suffering is fake. In fact, we as Christians of all people have a worldview that gives us the answer, the reason for why there is suffering, which doesn't eliminate suffering, but instead it validates the fact that we mourn and we weep and we are hurt in this life from time to time because we live in a world that is bent out of shape and broken and distorted by sin. And we know that that was not the ultimate initial creation. And we know that one day our Savior is coming back to restore all things and it will not be this way forever. But in this time, we of all people, church, can weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn because our worldview says that this is a reality. It's not just created. It's not just fabricated. We of all people don't have to pretend that everything is good all the time. Let me also challenge you if you are walking through maybe one of these examples I gave or something similar to to be vulnerable with those in your small group or to be vulnerable with those in your Sunday school class or to open up to, to others in this room, others in this church. You will be amazed 
by the compassion and the caring and the, the love that you are met with as you do. The second thing to say here is that while God has revealed part of his will to us, he has not revealed his whole will to us. Let me say that again because it's really important. And if, if you're not walking through unanswered prayer right now, if you're not walking through crisis or trial or tragedy or sadness right now, don't think, well, I don't need this because you will need this. You will need this to care for your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you will someday, at some moment, in some way, need this for yourself. It's important for us to remember, let me say it again, while God has revealed part of his will to us, he has not revealed his whole will to us. Theologians sometimes call this the, the, the difference between the revealed will of God and the secret will of God. Two wills of God, that which he has revealed in his word about himself and about creation and about ourselves and about salvation and about the reality of light and dark and the kingdom of God and all of these wonderful things. And he has given us everything we need for life and for godliness in his word. And yet, he has not revealed everything to us. There is more that we do not know than, than we know or that we will ever know. Because God's ways are beyond our ways. His ways are above our ways. His ways are beyond searching out. And so the revealed things are for us and for our children, but the secret things are of the Lord. Yes, children are a blessing from the Lord. That is revealed to us. But what hasn't been revealed to us is why children can be conceived by those who will not care for them or who will seek to abort them before they are born while at the very same time loving godly husbands and wives desperately try to conceive and yet God does not provide biological children. God's not revealed to us why that is. And some might say, well, maybe this is a reason to pursue adoption. While that is true, and while we hold up adoption as an amazing act of love, and while we acknowledge and affirm that adopted an adopted child into an adopted family is every bit is providential, every bit is God-designed for that child to be in that family as a biological child, and while we as a church encourage adoption and even have an adoption fund set up, we might minister and fund and help and support adoptions. All of this does not necessarily help in the moment when a husband and a wife desperately want to conceive. The most helpful thing to say in that moment is not, well, you can always adopt. It does not help us in that moment to answer the question that says, God, why aren't you giving us this good gift? And brothers and sisters, these answers are part of the mysterious will of God, things that he, for whatever reason, has not revealed to us. Why didn't he save my loved one before they died? Why, 
Why didn't he keep this sickness from me? Why didn't he restore my marriage? Why, why didn't he provide me a spouse? Why didn't, why didn't he? Why didn't he? So many of the answers to those questions are simply, we're not told. God does not tell us that. So where does that leave us? This is really important. It leaves us to, to trust in the dark what God has revealed in the light. To trust in the dark what God has revealed in the light. When we're walking through darkness, through uncertainty to why God, trust in that which he has revealed to us, what we already know to be true. When, we, when you don't understand something, when I don't understand something that God has kept secret, trust in those things that God has revealed. Trust in the things that he has said and the promises that he has made. And there are lots of those kinds of things that we can trust in and cling to. Let me offer just four in the time that remains. Trust in the truth that God is perfectly just and completely fair. Now, this is hard. This is not easy. Let me repeat. This is not easy to do, especially when your heart is breaking. And what seems just or what seems fair appears in our vision to be so clear, so obvious that this would be the fair, just, right, good thing to do. Why isn't God doing that? Friends, in those moments, we must trust in the truth that God's ways are above our ways, that he is the very one from whom we define justice and fairness that there is not, according to Scripture, a hint of injustice in him. Secondly, trust in the truth that God always has a plan, even when we cannot see it. Trust in the truth that God always has a plan even when we cannot see it. Even when we cannot believe. I can't believe he, he has a plan in allowing this or in causing this or in doing this. Friends, nothing God does is arbitrary. Nothing he does is arbitrary. Everything he does is connected to 10 billion other things that he is doing in the universe. And even when we cannot see the road ahead, we can, we can, we can trust the one who is behind the wheel. I don't know, this seems dark. I don't know, this, this seems murky. I don't know, this seems the opposite of what we should be doing. The wrong way that we are going. Why, why would this be happening? I mean, just look at how so often those in the Bible who endured 
terrible things didn't know how it would work out, right? Every time. Like, I don't know how it's going to work out. God calls to Abram, I want you to sacrifice your son. Take your son, your only son, right? Remember, this is your only son, Abram, and I want you to slaughter him. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey and took his son and went to Mount Moriah. He didn't know that God was going to spare the life of his son as he did. He didn't know what lay ahead in the road. It was all darkness to him. But he trusted in the one who was behind the wheel. Job loses everything. Not because he's unjust, but because he's just. Everything is taken away. In all these things, Job did not sin by dishonoring God or charging God with wrongdoing. Never once did Job utter or think, God, this isn't fair. I don't deserve this. Even when the road ahead was dark and murky, I don't understand why you're doing this, God. I have no idea. It seems the polar opposite from your good promises, the polar opposite of your good blessings. How does Job respond? He falls on his face and he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is not easy, friends. It's not easy. But it is possible. Third, As we are seeking to trust in the dark what God has revealed in the light, trust in the truth that God works all things for the good of his children. Trust in the truth that God works all things for the good of his children. Romans 8.28 is what anchors us when we are walking through darkness. And we know, we know, sometimes don't feel, but we know that for those who love God, some things, no, most things, no, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And remember, when we read that all things work together for good and we go through experiences and trials like the ones we just recounted and we say, well, this does not seem good. Like, How can God say he works all things for good when this is definitely not good? What I'm experiencing now is not good. Remember that the sight line of God stretches to eternity. Like, it may not be good in that moment. It may not feel good for us in that moment. But God's goodness scale is measured in light of eternity, not just in now, not even in 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 years, just just a drop in the bucket in light of eternity. Several years ago, our, our oldest daughter, I think seven at the time, had an emergency appendectomy, and I remember being there, Tara and I were at her side at the bed, and she was getting ready to go into surgery, and we're trying to explain 
through her to a seven-year-old, like, why this is good. Like, this is going to hurt. Um, this is, there's going to be an experience. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's not going to be fun. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. There's going to be some of that involved. You need to trust mom and dad that, that this, is, this is good. Was it good for her in the moment? It didn't feel good. But it saved her life, right? It, it, it was as her parents knowing this is actually for her good. It's not just pretend for her good or for some sort of theoretical good. No, this is actually for her good. And as Christians, is not our creator God so much more wise and knowledgeable than we are as parents? And so when he says, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, for his own children, we know that this is not just some sort of theoretical good or some sort of, sort of pseudo-theological good, like, yeah, I could probably write down how this could be good. No, it is actually good, even though nothing in our feelings, nothing in our heart in the moment is inclined to think or believe that it's good. And so your storm may not seem good right now, but if you are born again, it will work for your good and God's glory. Cling. Cling to that truth. And finally, trust in the truth that God, not merely his gifts, is the greatest joy. Trust in the truth that God, not merely his gifts, is the greatest joy. In the last verse of our text, Jesus says, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Friends, the greatest gift we could ever receive is the triune God himself. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives within every single believer that is the greatest gift of all. Do you want that more than anything else? Do you truly believe, as Psalm 16 tells us, that there is greater joy in the presence of God than anywhere else, than in anything else? That he is better, that he is better even than his gifts that he is better even than children or a spouse or a marriage or physical health. Can you say, I would rather have Jesus than houses or land? The old song we used to sing. Rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than any earthly pleasure, even any earthly relationship. That Jesus is better? And maybe you're thinking right now, like, that's really hard. Like, I know that to be true. I know that Jesus is the greatest treasure. I know that the triune God is better. He is the ultimate gift. But I don't always feel that. Sometimes I feel like my kids are a better gift. Or my spouse is a better gift. Or these other treasures are a better gift. Or my health is a better gift. 
Friends, this, this is the journey of Christian growth and maturity. That what we know to be true from God's word, that he is better, would slowly, slowly, slowly through women's Bible studies and men's Bible studies and small group and D groups and gathering for corporate worship and one-on-one conversations and studying the word and reading deep theology and all these things would sink that down, that we would not merely know it, but that we would feel it and that we would long for him in that way. He is our good Father, and we can come confidently to him in prayer, and we can ask him for our needs. But our greatest need of all, our greatest joy, our richest treasure is God himself. And I pray that that is so in your life. And I pray that where you don't feel that, where you don't long for that, but you know intellectually, theologically that is true, that God would just continue to work on you, continue to work on you. As I'm praying, he continues to work on me. When children or spouse or health or other things begin to come up and, and become idols and rival my affection for Christ, that once again I would be reminded that the greatest gift of all is God himself. That I would seek that, that I would seek him, that I would seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And that we would not only know it, but that we would feel it, that we would long for it. Pray with me.